Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 23, and it is sponsorship that we are going to continue talking about, and it's called sponsorship, more sponsorship tips, and the Rolex 24. We're going to touch on the highlights of that as well. So let's get started. We have a lot to talk about, and I know that this is probably an important aspect that a lot of people want to continue to hear about, and that's how to find sponsorship. Yeah, we did get a lot of people giving us feedback on this last episode. I am so happy that it gave some some value. And some of the comments came from people that I feel have done a great job at sponsorship. So it's always great getting um, other outside views. And also, too, I want to remind our listeners that I'm not talking about sponsorship because I think I'm the best at it, uh, far from, but I'm going to tell you just as much what not to do as what to do. So, and then other tips that I've learned from others as well. And of course, Derek has been doing this a lot longer than I have in motorsports, but everything across the board um, can be relatable. So let's go ahead and dive right in. We talked a lot about sales and cold calling last week how to initially get someone interested, more of the fishing. So I thought we would talk a little bit about prospecting on this episode. One of the biggest things I was trying to think that I have done when I first started that I would do differently and wanted to share that with you was I wasted a lot of time on sending decks out to big corporations. If you're a small team, or you're a small nonprofit, or you're small sports marketing, or a new business, chances are reaching out to big corporations is not going to be a great value for you. Not that it can't be done. I don't want to dash anyone's hopes on that. And especially if you have an in with a big corporation, that's totally different. But if you don't, and you're trying to send out decks to these big corporations, the info at you might want to either give that to someone else to do or rethink who you're sending them to. And let's talk a little bit about decks as well. So decks are a platform that is very valuable if anybody wants more information. If they say, sure, I'm interested, give me more information. I have never had a deck materialized to sponsorship myself personally. I know other people have. I know Derek has. I know some of my bird dogs and, and some of my assistants even have. But I personally have found that the best way to acquire a sponsor, especially a new sponsor, is through relationships, B2B, having them at the track or at an event where another sponsor is at, and finding commonality with someone else that links you to that person. So let's talk about that a little bit. What you need to do, in my opinion, that has been the most valuable is identify who has your interest in common. If you're in motorsports, look at your driver, number one. Does your driver relate to a specific company because of his lifestyle? 
Does he relate to a cause or a foundation because of something that he suffers from or someone close to him suffers from? Or a charity that he already does marathons for, already gives to? That's going to be really your first no-brainer. So for example, we had a driver in the car that was a vegan. So obviously when we're trying to pitch to a steak company, that was a no-go. The owner was not going to have a vegan for his driver or representative. However, on the flip, we did send out decks to Impossible Burger and they did end up having some interest. So think about what's a good match for your driver. Derek had a supplement that was designed for a mature man, for lack of a better word. Sorry there, babe. And that would not have resonated, say, with Quinn, who was very young. Also, looking at the possible ways that you can make something that might not be a great thing, like having asthma or having a disease or a disorder, um, looking at what products, foundations, charities, pharmaceuticals are trying to sell that particular thing that aids whatever it is that your driver has. For Derek, it was asthma and allergies. So he reached out to newer asthma product companies and actually got quite a bit of response. Right, right. I was going to say, you know, it was awareness, um, but you did get response as well. So be relatable. It is definitely the easiest. That's the low-hanging fruit. So identify your strengths and then outsource the others. For example, if you're not very good at social media, which I am not, then that should not be something that you're doing if your value is talking to the potential sponsors. My value is getting in front of people. My value is being on the phone once I get a lead. Same with Derek. So us doing social media, us doing researching, data, spending all day on Google or answering emails, that's a waste of our time. Well, that's the waste, that's a waste of our assets. If you have a strength that you're not doing, then you're wasting the strength that you have. You have a lot of other people that are happy to either volunteer to do that. You have interns that can do that. Your assistants can do that. Your kids can do that. So put them on the task of researching Google, social media, all of that, so that your focus is on what you do best. And then have them bring you the lead so that you keep filling your funnel, because filling the funnel is very, very important. Yes. As we alluded to last time, you have to develop a pipeline of entities that you're dealing with or you're approaching. And again, something to keep in mind too, there are certain guidelines, you know, and parameters that make a difference. And one would be timing. Certainly if you're dealing with larger companies and most companies have the same kind of timelines because their fiscal year can sometimes, you know, start or end you know, from between August and September that you don't want to start because they're a year-end, you know, December 31st type company. So trying to get things in front of people, broaching subjects and getting, you know, that process started uh, needs to happen, you know, in the summertime and, you know, early fall. And that gives you an opportunity for them to keep you in a budgetary standpoint. And, you know, their budgets fill up quickly. And whether they're going to try and tap into a sampling budget, a marketing budget, you know, uh, there's all kinds of things that, you know, become where you're going to get the money from. So just keep those things in mind. But yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a key factor in my opinion. That is an excellent point. 
you need to have an all-out attack from October of the year prior or September, October, the year prior to the following spring, like April, May, because most budgets are made in July. So, and by June, they've pretty much decided what it is that they're going to do. So if you are starting to hit them up September, October, and then you're following up after Christmas, and then you're really doing the hard decision-making process with them in March, April, that really is the best timing for the companies that do have marketing budgets. And we will go into those that don't have marketing budgets, startup companies, um, a little bit later on in the podcast. But another thing that Derek talked about we didn't really expand on last week because we ran out of time is nurturing the relationships that you do have. So say you do have a sponsor that is coming to the races. Let's create added value for them. Do some networking for them. Invite people to the race that have not only commonality, but have a product or a service that the sponsor you already have could utilize. For example, we had a sponsor that did the plastics for putting in the um, 5G networks. They were a plastics company. They needed to be introduced to contractors, to builders, to engineers, to people that were starting up you know, new breaking ground office professional buildings. So we were bringing people to the race, inviting people to the race that were contractors in the areas that they wanted, that were um, realtors. They benefited from that. And not only that, you will get sponsorship possibly from those people that you invited. So do your due diligence on what it is that your current sponsors need. Then once you acquire them, then continue down that path. Remember, you have a dynamic place to entertain them. They want what you have. There is a lot of companies out there that like rack their brain trying to think of something that is entertaining that can reward their top people. They're taking them to Vegas. They're taking them to Atlantic City. They're taking them on cruises. Taking them to a race, sponsoring the race, and getting the hot passes inclusive is an excellent way to provide rewards, incentives, you know, gifts to those people. And that's how you need to present it to those companies. I've always maintained that if you get somebody to the racetrack, then you have a great opportunity to probably get some kind of relationship going. You know, you got to get a ticket to the dance, right? So I've always felt like that if you could just get somebody to come, find a way, if you have to pay for them, you have to bring them, you provide them access. When you talk about a hot pass, meaning you're just going to give them a pit pass or an, you know, carte blanche opportunity to come in and see it up close and personal. And, you know, as Alicia has always said, it's almost like being on you know, the football field being on the sidelines with a radio headset on, you're listening to the coach, listening to the driver, you're talking about all the little intricacies that happen, all the interaction, all the variables and problems that you encounter. It becomes 
very, very uh, interesting for anyone who comes that has not had an, an opportunity before to witness all the things that happen within a race and leading up to a race, you know? So it really is a great environment to get people excited about something and give them a new perspective. And then at the same time, once they're there, they start to understand and see, and you have, you have the opportunity to discuss and explain all the intangibles. You know, you see banners up all over the place. They see grassroots marketing. They see p- people sampling, you know, products that got displays. There's all kinds of ancillary things that you'll be able to show them and they can see and understand that's inclusive of any type of participation that they have with you. Correct. So you are playing the matchmaker. So you get them to the dance, like Derek always says. And the dance is the race. Then you introduce the players and then you let them do the flirting with each other. And most often they're going to find whatever it is that the other needs and they're going to say, I've got that. The connections that they make there are so valuable. I have seen more deals, sponsorships made in a transporter on a pit box in a suite rather than in the boardroom. So, and making sure that they have places to converse, comfy chairs, refreshments, air conditioning, drinks, maybe if things are going really well, invite them to dinner. We had the opportunity to have a motor coach at track and that was an excellent place to bring them away from the hubbub and, you know, have a little bit of quiet to just kind of sit, have a beer and talk to each other because you definitely want to nurture the relationships with your sponsors that you're trying to do B2B with. I will give a caveat though. Derek mentioned, you know, find a way to get these people to the race. If you have a current sponsor and they are looking for someone else and you know of that someone else that is, you know, a personal friend or a connection, you know, definitely give them a hot pass. However, I would be very wary of giving hot passes to companies before they pay for sponsorship. That is an example of something we did and what not to do. Because what happens is they will come to the race if you've given a company hot passes and they have not paid for sponsorship, you've given away the milk for free. They don't have to purchase the cow if you've given them the milk. And more often than not, if they've got a taste of it and they brought their people they've got the event done and you've been shanghai So be very careful about offering something for nothing. You have the value. They want what you have. It is worth something. If they don't want to do sponsorship, then they pay for the hot passes. It's important that they are paying for something. And hot passes are sponsorship. You can put their name on the car. It does not have to be large, but they do need to be paying up front. Just inviting friends and family, great. Connections, perfect. You know you know that Uncle Joe is a builder and that's going to help the plastics company. Then you're actually working for both of them. But be very careful about giving it away. So let's go into startup companies. And oh man, these can be good and bad. And we've done a lot of startup companies, especially when we're in the Bush series, because that is what you can get a hold of. And that's who's actually reaching out to you because they have a new company and they're excited about it and they it's their baby and they think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it might be. But if the startup company does not have money for marketing, if they do not have a marketing budget that you know and they have an amount set aside, then they don't have a, a clear plan a clear plan. And that 
is disaster because you cannot go down a path without any marketing dollars. You can do some grassroots things. You can do boots on the ground. If they are in a retailer, even a small one, you can sample there. Now, remember, you can't sample at NASCAR anymore. So that's something you would only be able to do, say, at the road tracks, the road course tracks, like what we're in with the Trans Am series and the IMSA series. Well, I'm not even sure you can do it at IMSA. Yeah, you can, you know, at places, you know, you have to have, you know, different racetracks and different series have different parameters. But, you know, for, for the road racing uh, series, like Trans Am, TA, things like that, there's all kinds of opportunities, you know, to do things. You just can't be in like, you know, contrast to the actual series sponsors they have. So there are guidelines, but, you know, for the most part, the higher echelon, it becomes more difficult to market or sample and you have to do it externally or outside the racetrack and drive them to the, uh, you know, to the race. And driving sales, um, that is a hard one out of everything I've ever done. And that's what we had to do the most of because we had a lot of startups. It's very hard to quantify that data that the person that you touched through your racing program was the reason that that startup company got that sale. Say they're, you know, in a, a small retailer. It's very hard to prove that those sales came from this. Now, there are ways to do it. We had a product that was in GNC stores. So we made sure that there was a code that they used at the register that identified that they were getting the discount because of the NASCAR race. And we advertised that. Now, if they have no retailers and they're just online, you have to perform online. Again, you're going to have to hire someone who is well-versed in that area to advertise online to get them to click in the right spots to get to the retailer. And the driver needs to have a very good social media presence to be able to do that. And you need to have a driver that can plug, a driver that reps your product very well, not just, you know, does one tweet and says, you know, one and done. They've definitely got to be, you know, doing a lot of the work for you. Sometimes startup companies, they spend so much money on the creation of the item that they don't get investors for the marketing side. And keep in mind, if this is a take-to-market product, getting it into retail is ridiculously expensive. The average person with a great new inventive item has no idea that a retailer like Target, for example, does not even pay you a check until three months down the line, sometimes longer. I have literally seen our sponsors die on the vine because they cannot get paid. They can't replenish their supplies and spend money on marketing when they can't get paid from their major retailer. Other retailers charge enormous amount of shelving fees or back stock charges. And remember, each additional SKU costs all over again. We had a product that came in different flavors. So you got 10 different flavors. Every time you put a new SKU on the shelf, you say you start with berry because that's your most popular item, but you want to add grape, you want to add peach, you want to add lemon. Every time you add that flavor, it's additional fees all over again. So it's really important to educate yourself on the retail side. And I was very fortunate that I had worked with retail brokers in the nutritional products. So I knew what GNC, Vitamin Shop, Vitamin World, I knew what they charged and what they expected. And then going into NASCAR, I got introduced to all kinds of grocery re retailers. And there are some retailers like Menards that have great um, incentives for teams. So you just need to 
do your research as to number one, where is this product at? Where do they need to get at? And then the B2B relationships that you can build by inviting those brokers to the race is very can be very, very important and can be instrumental in them getting more distribution. And they will credit that to you. We had one sponsor that we got them in multiple other grocery retailers and they they were our sponsor for life after that. So just thinking like Derek said, things outside the box. Startup companies can be great. We have some that we still love and 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 keep in touch with to this day. But I would say the vast majority, they're they're uh, they're a hard sell. Most consumer driven products, when you're looking at <clears throat> what they have to go through, it's very difficult. And you know, she talked about SKUs and the slotting fees that they charge, and then they have to have the sell-throughs. Lots of times the products have to sell through, or you have to end up buying them back or taking them back, right? So then you have more costs on getting it off the shelves. Yeah, it's more expensive it up, to take it out take than it, it out. is to put it in. It's almost, that's where that we talked about close-dated products and things. Sometimes they'll physically barter that away, give it away, you know, and just because it's going to cost them more to dispose of it. So that's when we talked about trying to create relationships, talking to companies about, you know, maybe a little maybe a bit more innovative and saying, look, do you have any close data products that you get that you need to get rid of? And we can take that in lieu of sponsorship. Then you work on the secondary markets. So again, there's always, you know, different processes, two ways to skin the cat, and you just got to think outside the box. And everyone has obstacles. You just have to find out what they are. And I mean, you spend more time trying to figure out how you know, to help them overcome the deficiencies in their program, the, the, the struggles they're having. And lots of times, if it's just flat out because they don't have the money, then you're not going to create magic anyways, right? So again, you have to work within the confines of what you can do to create return on the investment for them. ROI is the key. And, you know, a long time ago, when you had, a, if you're racing programs in a televised series, you still have opportunities from a cost per 30 second value to give you know, in focus time. But in this day and age, it's harder to give that and quantify that to a number that's relevant to uh, a smaller company. So there's just so many things that enter into the equation, but it just comes down to creating value, doing a good service for somebody and doing more than what you tell them they'll do and just creating relationships, getting them started. That's the key. Get that pipeline going and know how big, know how small, and if it's just product, whatever to get started, but you have to get the ball rolling. Yes, absolutely. And I just want to add one more thing. You made me think of something, Derek, when you were talking about doing that added value and above and beyond, especially if they're in a smaller retailer and they don't have marketing budget and they don't have people that can be boots on the ground. One thing that I offered inclusive of sponsorship for Derek, and this went a long way with a lot of products, was I would go to that retailer. And one in particular was GNC. When I showed up to GNC and I sampled that product, that particular store showed sales double, triple the amount of the other stores. I was there in their face. If they were looking for a weight loss product, I had it. If they were looking for energy, I had it. I was going to be greeting them at the door and giving them a taste of something and educating the consumer on that product. Now, of course, I did have a nutritional background, but anybody can educate themselves on someone's product. And if you want that sponsor and you want to keep them, 
then that's what you need to do. And your driver needs to do it as well. They need to show up. They need to know what they're talking about. They need to sign autographs, even if it's just for one hour. And they need to do it often so that that retailer knows that this driver is loyal to them. The other thing too is there is, it's not talked a lot about, but always ask the retailer if they have incentives for their salespeople because they most often do. And the salesperson then gets a spiff for selling your product and find out what that is. Because if you can add to that spiff and you can tell them that you know about it and they're going to get something from it, and it's, it's not illegal, it's not unethical, it's something that the company already has in place. In fact, they pay them spiffs to sell their products, things that are marked with their brand name. So use that to your advantage to increase the sales of that particular sponsor and educate them. I would take them when they had their break, I would take those salespeople to a local restaurant. A lot of times GNC stores run them all. So you could take them to a restaurant for lunch and I would educate them on my product. So anytime someone came in and they needed whatever it was that my product offered, that was the first product that they thought of. So keep in mind that education and relationships, like Derek said, they go a long way because you want your sponsor's product to be the one that everyone thinks of when they're in that industry, that area, that store. One other thing too is lead generation, something that, you know, if people that own companies are looking for exposure, that's why social media really is, you know, the coming thing, right? Or is what's the big thing now. You're creating opportunities for them to get leads on people that are going to follow other people that like that specific product or that vein of things. So, you know, even if you're just doing stuff at the racetrack, trying to find ways to get, you know, signatures, get email addresses, get phone numbers, get you know, something that you can physically provide and track. You need something trackable, a mechanism that will track what people do. And then when you do something for a sponsor or whatever, they are able to track what you've done for them and it comes back to you. So, you know, all of those things, it's just food for thought, you know, lead generation, trackable mechanisms, things like that that you can do, whether it's a hero card that has a perforated break off with a coupon or something with a, you know, an email and send it in, you get a free, you know, something. So those are the kinds of things that you can do to create excitement and a following for your specific driver team and or product so with that we've you know covered a lot there hope some of it has helped you and at least maybe you know opened up your mind a little bit on on things maybe you can like find some keywords in that and take that and expand on that start googling and there's so much you know out there that you can like tap into and start to understand it better and then look for ways and people that can help you do those things and always always you know, give and share because it will come back to you twofold. If you bless others with your knowledge and other people, network for other people and they will network for you. Good karma. (laughs) That's right. Well, anyways, we are at the end of the month and we are now, you know, the weekend of the Rolex 24 and a lot of excitement, you know, kind of starting to culminate, you know, around motorsports in general, because obviously, you know, Daytona is coming up soon as well. And, you know, the Bush clash is, um, on the horizon, uh, out at the LA Coliseum, which we have alluded to before, uh, some interesting things have kind of transpired about the, um, you know, the road racing aspects right now are very much in the limelight, uh, because, you know, obviously NASCAR is kind of 
But the new next-gen cars kind of transitioned that way. We're going to the streets of Chicago this year. Uh, you know, So there's a lot of emphasis put on road racing right now, and a lot of testing for young drivers that we're doing at Nitro. Uh, for the you know Toyota development drivers and young kids trying to you know just hone their skills that are in the truck series or the Xfinity series, and um, NASCAR Garage Fifty Six. If you're not familiar with that, that is the Le Mans Twenty Four entry that will be in June, and they just announced the driver lineup for that, and that is um, a special, I guess, entry category for, uh, for Le Mans that is set aside for the technology of tomorrow and beyond uh, of innovative machinery so they kind of have like a special entry for you know certain things that can go run the 24 hours of Le Mans. well it has been announced that jimmy johnson your seven-time nascar champion jensen button who is the 2009 f1 world champion who retired retired from f1 a number of years ago and mike rockenfeller the 2010 Le Mans renner are going to be the pilots for the uh, garage 56 car which is kind of a collaboration um you know, with uh, some major groups, you know, and that is like, you know, uh, Chevrolet and Goodyear, uh, Hendrick Motorsports. Uh, so they're very involved in this project and uh, it's a modified version of the next gen car. And it's a collaborative effort, you know, that, uh, you know, that they're looking to take to Le Mans and, uh, and create a lot of excitement about it, which is what, you know, the next gen car has done. And I think you're seeing that in proof of the attendance and the ratings and all the things that's going on with NASCAR, which I think is, is on the rise and um a couple of things you know prior to that too i want to talk a little bit about uh you know there's been some big changes at ferrari everybody loves ferrari i think you know it's just a name that stems back to le mans you know and the battles with ford you know you I think you've seen probably the thing on next fix which is you know ford versus ferrari well those are some exciting things that are happening there ferrari is having a lot of turnover a lot of things going on there they were in a position to win the championship last year and had some miscues and uh, Mattia Benotto, which was the actual team principal there, he has resigned. And now Fred Vasseur, who came from Alfa Romeo, is now taking over the helm. And um, they, I think, are looking to try to get to the point where they can win a championship. It's the major thing. Ferrari will not be denied, and they always have been that way. So just wanted to kind of put that out there that keep an eye on this. This is going to be an interesting development, I think. And I think they have all the tools to go out and be very productive and give uh, Red Bull and... Um, uh, you know, Mercedes, the, uh, you know, some struggles. So it's going to be interesting to watch as well. Um, and on the F1 front, just to kind of touch base, we're still seeing a lot of rhetoric, you know, about the Andretti, um, trying to get to formula one, you know, then, and they can, he can, he's pressing. I think Michael really is, wants to be in there badly and is doing all he can. He just announced a new partnership with GM and Cadillac. So interesting things going on there. Um, it's still, has met to kind of a lukewarm reaction from F1. So I don't really know. It's kind of a dilution of money. It's all about money, obviously. But, you know, it'd be nice to see, you know, an American team besides Haas get back in there and, and, uh, and you know, go racing in F1. Because I think F1 in North America is gaining a lot of notoriety. Yes, it is. You know, and it's getting exciting to watch. People are paying attention to it. I mean, the race in Coda in uh, Austin, Texas went off um, really well and was well-received. And I'm even hearing talk that, you know, the Ford Motor Company is looking at a return to F1 and uh, because of, you know, the growing popularity. I mean, and they've been involved in it before, but kind of like putting a, a badge or a name on an engine, you know, uh, they're talking about something with Red Bull from what I'm hearing. But, um, it, you know, they were back with Jaguar back in 2000, 2004, I believe, and uh, where they badged the Cosworth engine. So 
Ford is stepping back up, looking at, you know, uh, things in road racing and F1 as well. I mean, they're looking at the, um, and not ruling out the LMDH, uh, or LMH type of, uh, uh, car as well. So, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is an influx of heightened interest in road racing. And I think that is evident in what just happened here this weekend with the Rolex 24. It was the largest crowd they've ever had for the Rolex 24. Uh, incredible, really. I think, um, you know, you could see by all the pictures, if you're watching the event, how, you know, <laughs> how many people were there. Um, you know, a lot of television coverage all night long. I paid a great deal of attention to it, really enjoyed it. And, you know, this was the debut of the, as we've already spoken about, was the uh, GTP uh, series. And this is that global platform that was spoken about and where you have all these manufacturers in there and, you know, for, you know, its debut here this weekend, I think it really came off exceptionally well. And the racing was great, uh, very competitive. Um, all the manufacturers that were doing this who have really put this car together in short order, um, have had major obstacles to overcome because of the electronification in the cars, as well as the internal combustion engine. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of, it's like a big hybrid type of unit and things, the technology, the words, the phrasing, uh, the optics, all of it has changed. And it was exciting. I mean, I think I alluded to in one of our past episodes that I had driven a GTP car in its infancy back in the early nineties and loved the car. So obviously I have, you know, an interest in it because I've driven it and I understand the concepts of how exciting they are to drive from a driver's perspective. But from a fan perspective, I think something new and innovative um, and all the talk of electronification, all the, you know, synergies between the manufacturers wanting to go electric and doing some hybrids and all that kind of thing. It's playing into this escalation in what Jim France and IMSA has wanted to do. And that is create excitement about the, the OEMs collectively getting behind motor racing and getting involved in the road racing aspects and they're doing it i think if you if any of you watched the uh, broadcast they spoke to a number of oem you know principles you know um i think uh the guy from chevrolet uh there was the the gentleman from uh bmw who you know by the way i mean bmw it's been 26 years i think since bmw has participated in you know any top tier division so that just shows you that BMW, who, which is, is a, a big name, you know, they, you can tell by looks of this car. I mean, it looks like you can tell the nostrils on the front of the car, just like the BMWs have a very signature look optically and the car, uh, you know, Bobby Ray Hall and, uh, Letterman Lanigan group, uh, you know, they had two of them there and they had some misfortune, uh, and, but, you know, got back going and finished the race and were very competitive and, but all I mean Cadillac. Acura, um, you know, all of these groups were there with these cars and Porsche with Penske, and it was a very competitive effort, a lot of fun to watch. Um, and then, you know, all the adversity these teams were, were having to go through, but you know, all in all, um, just a, an outstanding event. And when it comes down to racing <clears throat> at the end of events, right? 24 hours, you think I've been through it and you go through the early stages and the excitement and you wait to get your first stint. 
and you get in the car and you run a stint. Sometimes you run two stints. And then like for Austin Cindric and the LMP2 car, I think they had like, he had to run a three stints because the door got stuck, which I've had door problems before. <laughs> and this was in an LMP2 car and he had to stay in another stint until they made provisions to get that worked out. And uh, so that was, you know, a fun thing to kind of, you know, brought Probably back. Probably not some... fun for him. <clears throat> no, I'm sure he, you know, he was definitely, I'm, uh, you know, having <laughs> he needed a... to use the potty after he was done. <laughs> He was digging, but, um, you know, that's the elements that, you know, the variables you talk about races like that, right? You're talking about tapping into things the cars have not normally gone through and it was, uh, on the night and, you know, I, I watched the event closely and I really enjoyed, uh, you know, watching the comers and the goers, but, you know, last year's winner was, um, Mike Shank racing and that was, uh, Meyer Shank racing, excuse me, but they, uh, Mike Shank and that group, they were very, very competitive last year. They obviously have the IndyCar effort for Castro Nevis and Elio Castro Nevis has had won last year's event was, you know, the final driver there when they won the Rolex 24 and the 60 car left. I mean, it started off right where they left off. I mean, they were very, very fast from the beginning and really just kind of like set the pace early. And I think it's a real testament to that group, you know, that they, they have been a smaller group kind of coming in and sort of kind of like track house, right? Kind of like on the fringes, but, you know, showing signs of life. And all of a sudden now they have, I think, established themselves in the industry. And, and now that group, uh, I mean, they're drive for five for Elio Castro Nevis to try to win five, uh, uh, races, uh, in the Indy 500, which has never been done before. And he is one of the drivers that still have four wins. And so, you know, it's a, a great relationship. You're seeing a lot of exciting things come out of that. Uh, and then, you know, as the race progressed, you know, you always have the mainstays that you always have, you know, big time rivalries, you know, Chip Ganassi racing, Penske racing, right. And Penske suffered some, uh, some early, some early difficulties and they, they were cars were fast, but they were struggling with some things and it just didn't seem like that, um, you know, they were going to be a factor early, uh, and some miscues there. Uh, but you know, Chip Ganassi racing, uh, was very methodical in their approach and they were able to, you know, become a factor later in the race. Uh, but it, um, it was, you know, a lot of names that, you know, you hear in IndyCar and, um, you know, guys like, you know, Dixon and Pagano, uh, Elio Castro Nevis, uh, you know, you still have some of the new young guys driving there, you know, in some other series there that, you know, drive for Penske. So a lot of names you've heard and doing just outstanding things, but, you know, the other divisions were exciting as, as well to watch, you know, some guys that we know, uh, you know, Andy Lally, they were having a great run in the Magnus, um, you know, uh, uh, car and uh you know they ended up having a great effort um and you know again it was it was fun to see some guys get a chance like colin brown who's been in with core autosport right out of rock hill south carolina here uh and has been in like the lmp3 division for a long period of time cut his teeth actually drove for uh jack roush in uh the xfinity series and he's made his his uh, mark in road racing and now at the top tier level and you know ends up running very well today for the Meyer shank group so you know, I just, I've been, I guess, encouraged because, you know, we're involved in road racing now, uh, doing, you know, we're kind of like out of what we were doing with the NASCAR thing, you know, and, and management, uh, of the cup series. And we've owned our own Xfinity teams, truck teams, and now working with Nick and Nitro going into the road racing, you're seeing a lot of these young kids coming up that are, you know, from the karting eras. Right. And so 
now I just, we're just paying more attention to the road racing and having a much more, you know, interest in, you know, what's going on in, in overall. And I think that for the young drivers out there and the parents, right, they're always saying, well, how do we, you know, maybe they're looking at oval track racing or maybe they're in karting or maybe they're looking for what and where to go. Just like that we have spoke about early in our podcast about my father, my decisions and trying to find direction, right? I think if you look at the higher echelons of sport, I think there's a lot of opportunity in road racing for a way to make a living doing this. And I wanted just to kind of touch on a little bit because, you know, with what happened today, you know, and I looked at like the outcome, right? And I mean, here you got, you know, again, you have Meyer Shank racing wins the race and, you know, you got Tom Blumquist, Colin Braun, who cut his teeth in, in, in a lot of lower divisions to get there. And then you got the, you know, the big names, you know, Simon Paginone and, and Elio Castro Nevis, right? So they win the top tier, you know, first race for GTP. But you got a lot of young guys, you know, down in the other divisions that have come through and uh, they're making names for themselves. So it's something that I would feel like that if you're listening and you have young kids and you're, you're doing some form of racing, don't discount road racing as a way that could be a stepping stone for you to be able to drive a race car professionally and make a living doing it. Because I think road racing is an untapped area now that is gaining a lot of steam and notoriety. And you can get in it relatively lower costs in different divisions. And a lot of it is for what they call homologated, where it's going to come down to the driver. The cars are all the same. They have the same you know, types of cars and regulations. And it comes down to, again, people that prepare them getting the driver to be proficient, looking at the data, working on honing on his race craft and making him the best that he can be both in and out of the race car, which is what we have tried to touch on here at Race Theory. I think it's important that everybody listening that really is listening because they love motorsports, they have interest in hearing something maybe they haven't heard before or looking at things we talked about today like sponsorship, you know, helping shed light on things. And I think this is a good place for us to, you know, to shed light on because I think there's a lot of opportunities. Even if you're an oval track racer, even if you're running the, you know, you're stuck and mired in the late models and things like that, and you're kind of dying on the vine, maybe or you can't procure sponsorship. They normally have in some of these upper divisions, they, you get to run, you know, races like the WRL where they run eight hour races, two in a weekend, and you can share the car with three or four guys the opportunity to bring less money and share with somebody else and get experience. That's what it's all about. Notoriety, being seen, being visible and getting experience to showcase your potential. Think about road racing. I think that it's a good thing to be talking about and paying more attention to. And we're going to try and, and work harder about trying to look at some of the areas that maybe we don't have a lot of experience in. I mean, you look at like the GTD Pro, the TCR divisions, the GT4 divisions, you're talking about the new Toyota GR86, you got the Janetta series. There's all kinds of, you know, series that are down below. I mean, like, like Ben Meyer, who runs, you know, the, um, the Mazdas and the, uh, or the, the Miatas. There's all kinds of entry level things to do that you can go and get started in. And I think you can see young kids that are 13, 14, 15 years old, running very competitively against older people. And now that might just be the way to get your, you know, your child in a position to, you know, get noticed.
So those are some things that we wanted to talk about. Um, I'm, you know, again, uh, I love the race today. I don't know how many of you maybe have watched it, but you know, if you look at what happened there at the end, you know, the, again, 24 hour race, I want to go back to that a little bit here. It was, you know, you go to, you run 24 hours, right. And then the LMP two division, which is like the division just below the GTP, which is very, very fast prototypes. It came down to within like two feet winning the race on the very last lap made a stab at it you know and then he comes out and there's a young guy named james allen uh in the proton uh, uh competition uh oreca oreca he won the race beat the guy on the last lap and you know just you think about it right 24 hours of racing it comes down to two feet i mean now that's competitive and that's that was one of the higher echelon tiers of the sport as well and then our good friend you know andy lally who we've spent time with they finished second um, good for so, Andy. Yeah, they were second. We'll uh, that was the Magnus him. Racing. Yeah, Potter and uh, he and um, I think it's uh, Mara. I forget the other gentleman that was running with them, but uh, but yeah, they did a really good job. Hung in there and uh, you know made a switch to this deal, gone off on their own, and uh, did very very well. And the uh, GTT Pro Car, um, you know, the WeatherTech Group that that seems to be you know, they they spend a lot of money in the series and Cooper McNeil who is you know part of ownership in his in the family uh, in that they won again with the AMG uh, Mercedes and uh, Mauro Engel and and Cooper drives partial of that as well I think he's just retiring but he finally got his Rolex so that was exciting for them and uh, I think uh, I think and another guy just so we touch on it Thomas Merrill who won the championship in the TA2 division. Well, in the LMP3 division, which is like a prototype, but it's like the little bit less horsepower one, right? He was driving the number 17 uh, AWA Duquesne, and they ended up winning the race today too. So Thomas Merrill, congratulations. You just won the championship in TA2, and Trans Am uh, was a co-driver in this series, and he won here at DA. So uh, he drives for Mike Cope and those guys, and uh, you know it was just good to see him uh, get a nice effort in there, kind of really like a good first opportunity for him to be in a quality car and, and do very well. So, you know, uh, hats off to Thomas and that group too. And uh, overall, great day of racing. And this is the start of motorsports. This is Speed Weeks. It started here today. Next weekend, we go to the Bush Clash at the Coliseum, and then it's on to Daytona. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and uh, we'll talk next time. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.